Great. Thanks, Joe. Titus chapter 1 from verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm uh, the campus pastor here at Trinity Church Tonsley, and uh, let me add my welcome to that of Joe's from earlier. Um, I realise that's a very odd spot to leave our Bible reading this morning, kind of right on the edge of your seats. What's, t- what's Titus supposed to do? Don't read too much uh, ahead. Just come back next week, leaving you on a cliffhanger this morning. Um, but these five verses, I think, give us everything we need to know about what this letter uh, to Titus is really all about. And thankfully, I'm not alone in thinking this. I came across a great sermon uh, on these five verses by a great preacher in London called William Taylor. Um, I just want to acknowledge as I get started this morning that anything you find helpful or insightful about this passage is largely thanks uh, to William uh, and his, his great sermon there. Now, uh, it seems that Crete was uh, visited by Paul in the past. Uh, the people on this beautiful Mediterranean island, um, they'd heard about the salvation that Jesus offers, probably from Paul. Uh, some had been converted, uh, and there are Christians on Crete who perhaps got baptised, uh, like Ava's going to be getting baptised, in the beautiful, beautiful oceans of this uh, Mediterranean island, which I think got a, just a picture of. Looks pretty good, doesn't it? Um, verse 5, though, suggests there is plenty of work to be done, especially bringing clarity to who's leading the churches in Crete. Now, at a first glance, our Crete looks like an incredible spot for a mission trip, doesn't it? Uh, perhaps our next church plant from Tonsley, Trinity Church Crete, I might put my hand up to head there. Uh, incredible beaches, beautiful mountains, stunning. And so we might think that Paul's protege, his, his apprentice Titus, um, has been sent along there on this ministry assignment, pretty stoked. It sounds like a pretty good job. Uh, working with Paul's not always easy. Maybe Crete is kind of a bit like a sabbatical. Just put your feet up, enjoy the beach, take it easy. Uh, it's not quite like that. It's uh, beautiful, but the culture on Crete was godless and it was debased. Uh, in fact, if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to keep them open. Uh, if you flick to chapter 1, verse 12, uh, Paul quotes one of Crete's own philosophers who says, uh, I love this, uh, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, verse 13, this saying is true. I, I doubt that slogan makes it on the advertising for the tourists in Crete. Um, you realise, actually, this is not going to be a picnic for Titus, not at all. Um, He's been airdropped into a brood of vipers. It's a culture that hasn't been impacted by the gospel, and it's actually hostile to the truth. Uh, The Greek gods that were worshipped on on that island, uh, they were famously untrustworthy. If you know anything about Greek mythology, they're not good. Uh, They're not good gods. Uh, And actually, as the gods went, so went the Cretans. Uh, The gods lacked compassion and care uh, for others. Uh, And so did the Cretans. Uh, They were like evil brutes. Uh, Other translations have evil beasts. They lack compassion. They have no care for anyone but themselves, uh, meaning that they're self-centered. Life is about them, and so they become lazy and gluttonous. Uh, Life is all about seeking their own pleasure um, and all about their own indulgence. 
Now, as I describe all that, does that sound perhaps a little familiar to some of our setting? Um, I'm personally not on Instagram, I'm not on TikTok, uh, but from what I understand about social influence, uh, social media influences, it doesn't sound like too much of a stretch for me to say they are always liars, uh, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Uh, I, from an outsider, that looks a lot like social media. Uh, now, I love Adelaide. I think Adelaide's a wonderful place, a great spot to live, and I actually think it would be a bit harsh to describe Adelaideans exactly the same way that Cretan is described. I, th- I think it is different here. But I think it's only different here because, unlike the Cretans, uh, we have been touched as a culture by the good news of Jesus. Uh, we have inherited largely a legacy of a Christian worldview. Things like truth, historically, have mattered so much in a place like Australia. We, we rightly celebrate compassion, and selflessness is something we really admire here. However, I would say that this current generation... Uh, those values are actually becoming just a legacy of the years gone by. Things like trustworthiness, compassion, uh, serving others, they have a foundation that all rests in knowing what God is like. He is like that. Generations have gone before us and they've passed on that sort of behaviour, but we don't anymore as a culture have deep understanding or real ties to the source or the reasons for those kinds of values. And so increasingly, not just here in Adelaide, but actually everywhere, I think, uh, we are living in a post-truth age. You might have heard that expression. We live in a post-truth age where truth is basically whatever your tribe says it is. Uh, An age that is increasingly marked by hostility and violence. Uh, It's it's been a pretty brutal couple of years. It's becoming apparent no matter how much progress we make as humanity, we haven't moved past brutish behaviour. And life has become more and more, for the majority here in Adelaide, uh, more and more about not serving others. It's become more and more about our own comfort. Increasingly, I think we are finding ourselves among the people of Crete. Uh, People who are no longer recognising and actually denying a God of truth, a God of compassion, and a God who has served us. And I reckon it's only so long that a culture can run on the fumes of those principles before replacing them, generation by generation, uh, with godlessness in every way. So I reckon, as we launch into this wonderful letter from Paul, I reckon we can identify with Titus, Uh, we can feel a bit of what he feels as he lands in Crete, because I reckon he's up against much of the same things that we are. So the question today is, how how do we expect God to do anything in a culture like this? A hard culture, a culture that doesn't even care about what's true or noble. Here in these five verses, in this introduction to Titus, I think we get everything we need to know about God's plans to change a messed up culture. So uh, starting out in verse 1, we see that Paul is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, The word apostle just means that someone is sent. So Paul is sent by Jesus uh, with a mission uh, and also with authority. The authority that Jesus has, he, he gives to Paul. So um, to think about an apostle, I've got a picture here of our uh, foreign affairs minister, Penny Wong. Uh, you might see her in the news occasionally heading out on a jet to go and speak to uh, foreign officials from other countries. We can think about Penny Wong as a bit like Anthony Albanese's apostle. Uh, she is sent with mission and with authority to speak on behalf of the Australian government. That's what Paul's doing. He's an apostle sent by Jesus. Now have a look here at the uh, end of verse 3. As, Paul's, uh, as Jesus' apostle, the main job Paul has is to preach. 
That is, Paul's not claiming to be just some sort of guru. He's not just about um, yeah, life advice. And when Paul writes something, we don't look at it just as an opinion to weigh up. Paul's preaching has the authority of Jesus behind it. He's been entrusted, uh, entrusted by the command of God uh, with his preaching. He has the words, as God's words, actually, the same authority. Okay, that's the first part of verse 1. Paul, a servant and apostle of Jesus. That's clear enough. I have to say, the rest of verses 1, 2, and 3 does feel a little bit like word salad. Uh, heaps of words all chucked into one very long, complicated sentence. So my hope is I'm going to try and do my best to help us get ahead around what Paul is saying here. Basically, verses 1 to 3, the main thing Paul is on about, what he's explaining, is his purpose of being an apostle. What is Paul's job as an apostle? Why is he an apostle? Well, the second half of verse 1. We're told he's an apostle of Jesus Christ to, key word, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Just pause there. Two really big ideas. Faith and knowledge of the truth. That is, Paul's work as an apostle is about growing or furthering those two things in God's people. Faith and knowledge of the truth. Sometimes you'll talk to people who will uh, describe um, faith as kind of the opposite thing of knowledge, uh, like as if faith is believing something you, you don't really know to be true. But you realize here Paul's describing that faith and knowledge go actually hand in hand together. Uh, faith and knowledge are great companions. That is, uh, as you come to follow Jesus, you don't turn your brain off, uh, you do the opposite. You keep thinking, you keep asking questions, investigating. See, God's people are to be a people of faith. Uh, we are to have a real trust, a real dependence on, uh, on Jesus, uh, that he is the promised Messiah, and that in Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins, uh, and he gives us access to his kingdom forever. That's what we put our trust in, our faith in. And we are to know the truth, the truth about an eternal God who created us, who loves us, and who has the power over every single moment in history. Faith and knowledge go together. And so if we want to grow in our faith, uh, we also ought to be growing our knowledge of the truth. And if we want to grow in our faith, uh, sorry, if we want to grow in our knowledge of the truth, we also ought to be growing in our faith, in our trust in God. I realise I've used the word truth quite a lot. The classic question, what truth? What is the truth? And isn't it an arrogant thing to claim to know the truth? Uh, we are saturated with information, of course. Uh, sorting out truth and from fiction is often pretty hard work. Um, you could go home today and you could uh, listen to a dozen different sermons online from all around the world, uh, dozens of preachers. How can we know what we're listening to, what we're taking in, is the truth about God? How do we know we're actually understanding the real and true nature of reality? Here's one answer that Paul gives us that I think is crucial. Notice what Paul links truth to here. He talks about truth that leads to godliness. We know what truth really is. We can spot it if it leads us to godly living. If you want to know truth, or if you want to spot what false teaching looks like, see if it changes us. Uh, see if it changes us to be more like God, to live more like Jesus, or perhaps to live more like the Cretans. You know what it is when you see how it's played out. Uh, John Stott, a great uh, British pastor and writer, says this, it is an essential feature of truth and a good test of its authenticity that since it, truth, comes from God, it leads to God. 
any doctrine which does not promote godliness is manifestly bogus. And so it's right for Christians to be people who think, who don't shy away uh, from a faith that's accompanied by deep thought. That's just a quick word of warning. Of course, knowledge and just knowing a bundle of things about God, reading every single book about Him that comes out, that can actually be a little bit dangerous. It can puff us up, can make us less godly in the way we live if we're just absorbing knowledge for knowledge's sake. The kind of knowledge of truth that we should be growing in helps us know God and His holiness, His character more and more, and it helps us to be more and more like Him, to want to be more like Him in practical and tangible ways. Right, quick recap so far. Uh, Paul's purpose as an apostle is to further the faith and knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. He goes on, uh, this faith and knowledge both rest in and are built on what is in verse 2. Faith and knowledge both rest on a sure and certain hope of eternal life. That is, everything we have rests on hope for eternal life. Eternal life. Uh, we use the word hope in all sorts of different ways. Uh, we often use it to mean something I would like to happen, but I'm not that sure about. For instance, uh, I hope that the water at the beach today isn't too cold as we baptise Ava. Or, I hope this sermon isn't too long or too boring to put you to sleep. Hope is a bit general when we use it like that, but that's not how Paul is using it here. Paul is saying that eternal life is guaranteed for God's people. Hope is simply looking forward to that promise that wonderful guarantee. So Ava, as she today uh, has shared about her faith and her hope in Jesus, Ava doesn't need to wonder about you know, if one day God will forgive her and accept her. Ava can and should have full assurance and certain hope. It's guaranteed that as she trusts and follows Jesus, she has nothing to fear on that day she stands before Jesus. She has everything to look forward to. It's a wonderful thing. One of the ways we see this sort of uh, expressed further in in Titus, if you turn actually to chapter 2, verse 11, these are some really key verses in this letter. I'll read in a second from chapter 2, verse 11, how faith and God are living happen as we look forward to that day. So here um, Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Paul's saying this day is certain, it's coming, and so our hope is based on something we can guarantee. And so that shapes everything about how we live now as God's people and as we look forward to and wait for that day. Now, back in chapter 1, if you flick back, uh, Paul gives three facts about why this hope is so sure. He doesn't want us just to, you know, take, don't just take my word for it. Paul gives us three uh, wonderful facts to back this up. First, he says, it's promised by a God who does not lie. God keeps his promises, and of that we can be sure. Secondly, God has promised this before the beginning of time. Uh, this is not God's plan B. This is something he's planned all along. We can have great assurance. And third... Uh, What we see from verse 3 is that at God's appointed time, God has brought this hope to light. It's no longer hidden. God has made this hope clear and plain and visible that we can and should have hope for eternal life. Now, what I've just flown through, I think, is the most densely packed, idea-heavy part of this whole letter. Uh, And thanks for bearing with me. Thanks for bearing with Paul. It's Sunday morning, pretty hard to get right into a very complicated sentence. 
And so if you feel you've missed some of what I've covered, that's okay. Uh, over the next few weeks, Paul returns to these big ideas and sort of explores them in depth. And that's what we're going to be doing as well. Uh, we're going to be thinking about truth, about godly living, and how that ties in with a certain hope. And just having all those hallmarks of Christian faith and life working together. And for anyone here who's uh, coming along, checking out Jesus for the first time, maybe it's the first time you've been in church for a long time, uh, it might be your first time in church at all, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It's wonderful you can be here. I really am shooting through some really crucial themes in the Bible really, really quickly. Uh, it's okay if some of it's going over your head or you have lots of questions. Perhaps one thing I'd love to just give you a sense of today is the way that Christians can and have and live with real hope. I hope you'll see as you talk and uh, see Christians living that I don't think we're a naive people. Uh, we know what the world is like. I don't think our hope is just wishful thinking. Uh, we are intensely thoughtful. Uh, we do very much rest our lives and, our, and our, um, our whole lives on that great hope. Perhaps today, uh, more than ever in my lifetime, as I look around uh, our world, our hope for the future is really in short supply, isn't it? And so we'd love it, actually, if you were able to stick around with us each Sunday uh, to find out more about this hope and how it can make a massive difference in your life too. All right, we've um, looked at a pretty wordy and dense introduction, and the question I want to ask us is, um, why do you think Paul tells Titus all of this? Titus has worked with Paul for years, like, Titus already knows all this. Why does Paul start this letter with such a focus on these extraordinary themes, front and centre? So if we can understand the answer to that question, why Paul start, why does he start the letter this way? If we understand that, we're going to understand the letter. And so first, again, remember Titus's context. He's airdropped into what I reckon would feel like an overwhelming mission. He's supposed to straighten out and fix up the churches in Crete uh, in this godless culture. Uh, he's supposed to appoint leaders in every town. And I haven't even mentioned what Paul will say later, is that there is trouble inside the church as well. It's not just a dangerous, uh, hostile culture. How is Titus going to do this? What's he thinking as he steps off the boat, heading into Crete, with his letter in hand from Paul? Well, if Christianity is just a set of stories about God and a list of rules to keep, I think Titus has no hope on Crete. He can't do anything, actually. Uh, and same here for Adelaide. We have no hope, if that's what Christianity is. Just a set of rules to follow and uh, some stories about God. But it's not that. And so Paul is showing Titus and reminding him he actually has everything he needs already to get this incredibly difficult job done. Titus and the Christians in Crete have the life-changing message of the gospel. Just um, have a look at verse 3. Paul says something I think very odd and surprising. It's uh, not immediately obvious. I didn't see this at first. I'll try and trace it through. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says the faith and knowledge we have rests on the hope of eternal life. And then get to verse 3. He says, that hope, which is now at his appointed season, he has brought to life through... Now, just pause. Don't read on. How might you expect Paul to finish that sentence? Nearly everywhere else where Paul explains God bringing things to light or revealing things, it's nearly always through Jesus. Nearly every time Paul talks about God revealing and making a mystery known, it's always through Jesus. And if you're taking notes, you can see how he does this in chapter 2, verse 11, and chapter 3, verse 4 in Titus. I reckon as we read verse 3, we might expect, to say, uh, might expect Paul to say that hope has been brought to light through Jesus. But it's not what he says. He says, God has brought all this to life through the preaching entrusted to me, to Paul. It's through preaching. Just someone standing up and talking about Jesus. 
Uh, it's through Paul's preaching, uh, the gospel, the words of life, entrusting him by God, by God, that's how lives are radically transformed. It's through the preaching of the apostolic gospel that faith and knowledge of the truth lead to godly living, even in Crete, especially in Crete. See, how is, how is a place like Crete going to change? Paul's saying it already has. God's people who have heard the gospel and have had their lives changed, they have hope, they have faith, they, they're looking forward to eternity. That really does change how people live. It changes communities, it changes even messed up cultures. So Paul's preaching the good news that leads to faith in Jesus. That's actually everything Titus needs to get this job done. You can imagine putting yourself in Titus's shoes and thinking, well, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to like, transform this crazy bad culture? You realise, oh, he doesn't have to. Titus doesn't have to go there and whip them into shape and you know, whip them up into a moral frenzy. He doesn't need to. Titus doesn't need to change their behaviour. Titus just needs to keep pointing them to the grace of God in Christ. Keep reminding them of God's mercy to sinners, to liars, to evil brutes, to lazy gluttons, to people just like us. We realise that communities genuinely are transformed and shaped by Paul's gospel message. And we realise that's God's plan for Crete. Local churches with uh, leaders in place scattered all around, that's what's going to transform and change a culture. Local churches are God's plans for the world. See, in verse 5, we, we realise that Paul's strategy, if you think about what Paul did, he'd preach the gospel everywhere, you get the impression Paul just preached and ran off and preached and ran off. What Paul's doing is preaching, forming churches, establishing leaders, and then moving on. Church planning is what Paul was all about. That's how God is changing the world right now, through local churches. Now, I reckon, of course, it'd be great if our culture in Australia was far more godly, uh, it would make life far better, far easier if Australian morality uh, and culture was reformed from top down. Uh, how great it would be if, the, if our politicians in charge uh, were all on about compassion uh, and truth and self-sacrifice. I'm not going to hold my breath on any of that. And of course, I know there is a place for Christian engagement in political activity, for sure. But I reckon we should probably keep our expectations pretty low uh, about how our government could be involved in shaping our culture to make it more Christian. There won't be much moral reform. There's not going to be much positive cultural change we can expect in a top-down sort of way in Australia, I don't think. Especially because in a place like Australia, committed Bible-believing Christians who regularly go to church make up maybe 8% of our population. We're a minority. Paul doesn't send Titus to speak to the governor of Crete, does he? He doesn't go and lobby him and sort of uh, try and shake up culture. Titus doesn't go around banging Cretans to try and adopt better moral standards for their society. I mean, it would be good if their society looked different. But in a godless place, transformation happens not from top down, but from bottom up, from the grassroots, from the local level. As we'll see in the rest of this letter, as Christians and churches live such remarkably different and godly lives uh, in their homes, uh, in their, their churches and in their communities... Christians are shining. They're beaming out a goodness and hope and mercy and grace. Uh, that's what's going to change Crete, and that's what's going to change Adelaide. That's what's going to change our world. Healthy churches preaching the gospel. God really is doing that work all around the world right now. There are, today, countless groups meeting up just like we're doing, 
there's leadership in place, established in cultures often far more godless than our own, but lives and communities, subcultures, are being transformed by the preaching of the gospel in local churches. That's God's strategy. I reckon it's brilliant. It's a great strategy. Like, think about how are your friends going to hear about the gospel? Um, Our colleagues aren't going to sort of stumble across the gospel on Netflix, are they? They'll be incredibly lucky to find anything on TikTok that's actually legitimately helpful. But they can see the difference that hope for eternity really makes in our lives when they see God's people gathered, living life together, gathered around the preaching of the gospel. Local churches become community-shaping, culture-changing centres, life by life, family by family. And so, what does that mean for us here at Tonsley? Well, perhaps the most helpful thing to do as we introduce this letter today is actually just to skip right to the end of the letter. Uh, I think that's how you're supposed to read everything, isn't it? Start with the introduction, skip to the end, skip all the details in between, and then come back and read the details later. Uh, as Paul signs off in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, Paul says to Titus, uh, everyone with me sends you greetings. That you, Titus, is the singular. He's talking specifically just to Titus. But then, very last thing he says, grace be with you all. Directed more to more than just to Titus, isn't it? Who's Paul talking to there? It's a little detail, but it's worth mentioning so, so we know what kind of letter this is. It's a letter that's first for Titus, absolutely. It's to encourage him, to give him clarity about the, how the gospel will change Crete. But it's supposed to be read. Paul is expecting it to be read by the Christians on Crete as well. Because Paul wants them to know about this strategy. He wants them to know, and he wants the Christians in church to know what kind of leadership is needed, uh, what kind of teaching is required for this culture-changing work. We're going to especially pick that up next week and cover that more. That is, Paul seems to want Christians to understand this strategy and, and, of course, to get on board with it, uh, to align our lives with this great strategy of local churches changing the world. Which means, uh, of course, if God's plans are centred around healthy churches, we ought to make sure our lives are centred around healthy gospel-preaching churches and being involved in it. It seems to me there is no better cause we can have with our lives than to help make our own church as healthy as it can possibly be, and with each one of us playing our part in that. If we want to put our energy and effort into making a real difference in this world, to transform our culture with a lasting difference, I think nothing even comes close to the work of investing ourselves in the growth and the health and the multiplication of the church we belong to. And so if you've been around Tonsley here uh, long enough to realise, you will realise very quickly we're far from perfect as a church. It shouldn't take you long to work that out. So can I invite you, if you've realised that, to stick around and help us make it better? Or if you're finding yourselves underwhelmed by your experience at church, can I invite you not to sort of switch off and withdraw, but to switch on and to invest. Uh, Invest yourself in God's project of growing and multiplying churches. Help us be less underwhelming. That'd be great. I want to say one of the things I love most about our church is um, there are so many people doing this, uh, investing in the local church, uh, being so invested in one another, caring for, praying for each other. Uh, There are so many people involved in the nuts and bolts of church life. So many people take initiative and and feel feel ownership uh, of this church. It's wonderful. We're trying to get better at how we welcome, how we care, uh, how we encourage each other to live in godly directions. I also think it's a great part of our DNA uh, that we have in the Trinity Network of Churches. 
Uh, we're on about this strategy, this strategy of planting new churches in every place uh, with gospel preaching at the heart. That's what we're on about. We want to start new gatherings. We don't do that. We don't plant churches because it's easy and it's uh, never good for the budget. Um, it's neither of those things. But starting new churches in new communities, I think, is the best thing we can all be doing with our lives, to pour our energy, our time, our resources into. Because healthy churches that plant more churches is genuinely culture-changing. It's life-changing. And we pray, as increasingly we get on with this urgent work, God will transform communities, families, and perhaps even whole cultures from the bottom up. So the obvious uh, reflection question to ask today, as we hear about God's plans for Crete, and I suppose for Adelaide as well, is, here's the question, how aligned are our lives to this plan? How are we going investing in committing to our church family? Now, personally, I think it looks like we're going great. I'm so thankful to be part of a church family with so much investment and so much uh, buy-in. But I'll ask the question anyway, uh, because it's not up to me and my perceptions, it's up to you and your hearts. It's an issue of the heart. How are you going committing to your church family? One way to, I think, think about this, uh, stats are not everything, but they can reflect attitudes, of course. Uh, churches just like ours all around Australia tend to find most members get along to their home church about 60% of Sundays in the year. So regular people at church get along 60% of the time, uh, touch over that. You might ask, is that good? Is that bad? Uh, when we first started here at Tonsley, uh, those who started out on the sort of team getting planted, most people were here pretty much every single week. Um, and for the first few months, our attendance, uh, regular attendance, was well above national average. People were coming basically 80%, 90% of the time. A year and a half um, into it, uh, we settled back into, we're above the national average, but not by much. And don't worry, by the way, I'm not heading down to a guilt trip land here, we're just, uh, just some stats to get us started. Uh, of course, uh, no church is going to have 100% attendance from everyone every single week. It's ridiculous. Uh, there's sickness, there's, there's holidays, we might visit another church for a baptism. Um, no one's going to be here at Tonsley every week. We, we all have different limitations, uh, different capacities. I have to say, though, as I was thinking about this, I do sometimes have moments where I am tempted to head down guilt trip uh, lane. Um, only because, though, I've sometimes caught myself wishing I had a bit more flexibility to not be here on a Sunday. Um, that is, I think, gee, it'd be nice to have a Sunday free occasionally. Uh, it'd be great to have a, you know, a full long weekend without a Sunday in the middle that I have to be here at church for, to head out camping or do whatever people do on long weekends. Wouldn't it be nice to have more flexibility on my Sunday like, well, like you guys do? What I've been reminded of this week is I think I am the luckiest guy in our church. Because, of course, firstly, every time I gather, it is a great blessing to be here. And unlike everyone here, uh, pretty much everyone here, I don't have good things competing with my Sunday attention, like so many of you do. In fact, I've sometimes forgotten how hard it can be to make church your number one priority in the week. It's easy for me. I have to be here. Of course it's my priority. My boss isn't going to ask me to come in and work a late shift on, on Saturday night or get me on a Sunday morning. I kind of am here on a Sunday morning doing work anyway. My family and my friends don't ask me out to brunch or to come over um, uh, to hang out or go camping on a Sunday. It's a wasted invitation if they ask me to do that. Of course we'll say, no, I'm going to be here. It's easy for me to say that. They don't even bother anymore. When my kids get invited to, to birthday parties on a Sunday morning, it's, it's easy for us as a family to make that decision and say, well, no, we have to be at church. Those weeks when I'm feeling tired or you know, just feeling a bit off if I've missed exercise or missed quality time with my family, well... I just have to find another time to catch up. It's easy for me to prioritise church. 
I have to be here, and it makes it so easy to say no to other good things I could be doing to do the best thing and be here. So I guess my application for today is you should all be insanely jealous of me. I have it very good. It's so easy for me to commit to being here every single week, and it's such a blessing. I guess what I'm saying is, um, good on you for the ways that you are committing to be here, being here as often as you are, for trying to put church first in your calendar every week. That really is so encouraging, especially given how many other good things you could be doing, like studying for exams right now. Keep going and keep remembering and being encouraged. God's strategy for changing our world is through local churches like this one. Because it's in the local church, with the preaching of the gospel, that is how we grow in our faith and our knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. There is nothing better for us or for our world. So let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the certain hope for eternal life you have put before us. And thank you for making it so clear and sure in the gospel. We thank you for gathering us as your people, changed by that gospel. Thanks for growing us in our faith and our knowledge and our godliness. Please keep increasing us in all these ways. And so please help us as your people to show and tell the world around us how glorious you are and how worthy you are of our whole hearts and our whole lives. Amen.